Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Daily Daf Differently. My name is Rabbi Abby Sosland. Today we are learning Masechet Kutubot, Daf Samech Vav, page 66. We're at the very beginning of chapter 6 of this Masechet. The chapter is called Mitziat Ha'isha. At the bottom of yesterday's Daf, we read the first Mishnah of our chapter, which gives it its name. The Mishnah begins by declaring that Mitziyat ha'isha u'ma'aseyadeha leba'ala. The findings of a woman and all that she creates, all that she earns with her own hands, will go to her husband. V'yirushta hu'ochel peroteha be'chayeha. Anything she inherits, however, is hers, although her husband may enjoy it in her lifetime. In the Gemara, the rabbis bring a teaching by Rabbi Akiva, whose opinion adds a slight addendum to the Mishnah. A Mishnah in Nidarim teaches that if a woman makes a vow that her husband may not share in her earnings, the vow is not valid, since it is counter to Jewish law. So, for example, if a woman swears upon God's name, which anyway she shouldn't be doing, that her husband will never touch a cent of what she earns, that swear that vow is not even valid because she has no basis to do that. It goes counter to the law. The husband doesn't need to revoke the vow. But interestingly, Rabbi Akiva says, no, he does. He must revoke the vow. Lest the wife create more than what her husband is due. Rabbi Akiva is arguing that if a woman creates surplus earnings, ha'adafa, as in the Hebrew term for odef, or extra, or change, as we might ask for if we were in Israel, she may keep those surplus earnings. She may keep the ha'adafa, as all of the extra effort is hers, and it belongs to her. The question, then, is what about mitziyat ha'isha, the findings of the woman? Would Rabbi Akiva allow her to keep them for herself or not? The question that concerns the rabbis is whether a woman would expend extra effort on finding things. Amar of Papa, Mitziata kehaadafa she'al yidei hadchaki. The findings, things that she finds, should be treated like surplus earnings, since they do take extra effort. According to Rashi, finding things that could be used in the home does take a lot of extra effort. As Rashi says, For most findings, one really needs to go after them. One really needs to put in effort, like finding fish that are on land, or a lame deer, or a buried treasure. I like to think about this in today's terms. There are the kinds of people 
who are really able to make use of things. They find an old chair on the sidewalk and they fix it up. Or they go to the market after it's closed for day-old bread or vegetables. That takes a lot of effort. Rav Papa is acknowledging this effort, and therefore he argues that Rabbi Akiva is actually contradicting the Mishnah. For him, mitziyat ha'isha and surplus earnings should both go to the woman. Plukta de Rabbi Akiva v'Rabbanan. Rabbi Akiva disagrees with the Tanakhama then, the writers of the Mishnah, because he is saying she should actually keep the things that are that she puts effort into. So that would include both mitziyataisha and everything that she earns of surplus. So now we have a major disagreement. Rabbi Akiva disagrees with the Tanakama. Who wins this argument? Hmm. The Gemara does not actually choose sides. Evidently, there is no clear winner here. There's no logical conclusion at which we can arrive. So it is left as an open question. Take I want to spend a couple of minutes focusing on this fabulous word, teku. First, to close out the argument, I think it's clear that Rabbi Akiva and the rabbis are both trying to understand how a woman's work works. And what's interesting about the teku is that they both seem to know that it's not so clear. Teku is one of the great words of the Talmud. There are a lot of traditions of what it actually means. Perhaps one of the best places to look is in the 12th century dictionary of Rabbi Natan ben Yechiel, the Aruch. That was a project that took him 35 years to write. It was a dictionary that explains every expression from all of the rabbinic period, from the Talmud, the Midrashim, and even some Targumim. According to the website Haprosdor, the Aruch has the word teku as derived from the word teek like a pocket or a pouch. Teku, then, would suggest that the answer is sealed in its container, in its teak. It's placed in a pouch whose contents are unknown to us, put in a pocket to deal with later. Other ideas that I found fascinating include the possibility that teku might be simply a contraction of two words, teikai, let it, let this question stand, or tekum meaning let it stay as it is. It's probably the most basic, clearest answer. Or as Haprosdor writes, quoting the Musafa Aruch, it's a contraction of ishtiku, meaning be silent. We can't come to a decision now, but everyone be quiet. This is, of course, an interesting twist on the word, as Haprosdor writes, in that not only does it acknowledge our inability to answer the question, but it actually implies that you shouldn't even try to answer it, that any time spent on this topic is not worthwhile. Of course, for many of us, the word teku comes to remind us of the famous drasha, which the Aruch evidently only references as a cute little memory trick, a siman, that teku is the acronym taf yud kof vav, tishbi yitaretz kushyotu vayot. Tishbi, that is, Eliyahu Tishbi, will come and solve all of the questions that have gone unresolved so far. Wait for the Messianic age, and we'll figure out who wins, Rabbi Akiva or the rabbis. Eliyahu is a strange character to whom to assign this task of resolving all dilemmas in the Talmud. He was not a particularly resolution-oriented prophet. On the contrary, he was known as being a zealot who would stop 
nothing to make his point. Think of the crazy showdown he hosted on Har HaKarmel when he challenged the prophets of Baal to a sacrifice test. And then as soon as our God proved his existence by accepting the sacrifice, by sending down a great fire, Eliyahu went and killed the prophets of Baal, 450 of them. Why would this be the guy to resolve the dilemmas of the Talmud? Interestingly, the Tanakh itself suggests that Eliyahu will be the one to bring about messianic resolution to the world's biggest problems. At the very end of the Nuh section of the Tanakh, at the end of the selection about the prophets, the prophet Malachi announces in God's words, I hereby send to you Elijah the prophet, who will announce the messianic age. And he will turn the heart of the fathers towards their children and the heart of their children towards their fathers. In the Tanakh itself, Eliyahu is seen as the ultimate peacemaker, perhaps as an antidote to the kind of zealotry that he was known for. This would make him then probably the perfect person to solve the kinds of conflicts that came up in the Beit Midrash of the Talmudic era. Another Midrash suggests that Eliyahu is actually the reincarnation of Pinchas, the Kohen who spears to death the Israelite Zimri and his Moabite girlfriend who are um, <clears throat> interdating in front of the Ohel Moed, in front of all the people and the tent of meeting. Evidently, when Zimri asks Moshe whether or not he could be with this woman, Cosby, Moshe says no. Zimri answered back, but wait. Isn't your wife also a daughter of Yitro? She's also a non-Israelite. How could she be allowed to you? Moshe had nothing to answer, nor did any one of the people or the judges of the people have anything to answer. As told by Rabbi Dr. Yehoshua Rabinowitz of bar University, the Israelites were um, discussing the issue and they were procrastinating. But Pinchas, one who lived with them, came forward and he volunteered and stepped forward and provided the answer. This is not okay. So according to the Midrash, this was the very first teku, the first argument that didn't have a straightforward or clear answer. And it was Pinchas, who is, according to tradition, Eliyahu, who actually was able to resolve it. I'm not sure I love this Midrash, but it is certainly elucidating. At moments throughout our history and throughout the Talmudic literature, there are questions without an easy answer. There are questions without easy resolution. Why do things seem so unequal? How does justice really work? What is the most righteous path here? What is the best way to handle women's earnings and the way that they take in and give out their effort? I like the idea that we don't always know the answer, that sometimes we just have to let things lie. Pinchas's response, the zealotry and violence that are certainly one way to solve a problem, provide one possibility. But the Talmud in this hidden acronym, Teku, seems to hope for better. One day, this problem will be resolved in a way that is fitting and even redemptive, or in its own way, messianic. For now, though, Teku 
let's just let it stand. Until tomorrow. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Horus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.